So this series, if you're if you're here for the first time today, the series is, um, as you can see on the screen, Q and A, your questions, God's answers. All the all the questions that we're answering in this series this summer came from the congregation, and and so we we're uh, trying to answer those. I I am consciously aware of um, the burden of saying God's answers, but we're really trying to be. Uh, bring uh, solid biblical responses to each of these questions. Our subject today is uh, part two of a two-part message, What Does the Bible Say About Polygamy, Homosexuality, and Transgenderism? I want to let you know what my goal is today. Um, I found myself drowning in material, <laughs> not surprising. And um, so there's a whole lot more that I would like to say on this subject that I don't have time to say. Um, I'd like to talk about issues in society and in the schools and the government, and um, I'm just not going to have time to do that today. So my goal really is to teach biblical doctrine, biblical truth on this, so that uh, you have a hopefully a, a rounded view of what the Bible has to say. Last week. At the beginning of the sermon, I laid down the biblical prescription for human sexuality and marriage um, as background to all three of these subjects, polygamy, homosexuality, and transgenderism. And I want to just review that in bullet form very quickly. In Genesis 1, we saw the mystery of the imago dei, the, the image of God, that we humans are created in the image of God and that the image of God in humanity includes and requires both male and female. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. The purposes for which God created mankind, both male and female, is to bear and to reflect uh, his image and his likeness uh, in the world and together to exercise dominion or rule over the creation. So human men and women share in image bearing, uh, being equal in honor, being equal in dignity. We share by design and of necessity in fulfilling the command to pro- procreate, that is to reproduce, uh, to fill the earth. We share in fulfilling the command to rule together over God's good creation. In Genesis 2, we saw uh, man alone in the garden and God's divine diagnosis at Genesis 2, verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. That's God's diagnosis. It wasn't the man's diagnosis. It wasn't social commentary. It wasn't editorial commentary. It was God speaking. It is not good for the man to be alone. That was followed by what I just referred to as the divine prescription. I will make a helper fit for him. And then the divine fulfillment of that prescription, the Lord God made a woman, not another man, uh, not an animal, not a bird, not a reptile, not an insect. He made a woman and brought her to the man. Diagnosis, prescription, and fulfillment, all three precise and perfect from the creator God. God alone had the capacity, had the power, had the authority to solve the not good of the man's aloneness by creating from him and for him one woman. 
And the man and his wife were both naked, verse 25, and they felt no shame. In their creational purity, uh, pre-fall, before sin, they experienced perfect intimacy. And then in Genesis 3 came what we refer to as the fall. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God actually said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die, for God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. I want you to notice with me the serpent's tactic in this circumstance. He begins with a question with an incredulous edge. Has God actually said, that's kind of the tone, has God actually said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Really? Wow. Why would God actually say something like that? And he immediately has her off balance, evidenced by the fact that in her reply, she protectively adds a prohibition that God never laid down, God never asserted, which is that they must not even touch the tree. That's Eve's addition, or they would die. In his second move, the serpent then directly contradicts the word of the Creator. You certainly will not die. In other words, God has been lying to you. What God has said is unreliable. You can't trust what he says. And then third, he launches a direct assault on God's credibility, his character. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, like him, knowing good and evil. God's been keeping something very good from you. He's keeping you down. He's keeping you in the dark. He doesn't want you to experience what it's like to be him. And notice with me that the first effort at being trans anything in the Bible was the effort to be like God, to transition from humanity to deity. And the tree suddenly looked ever so much more attractive, more appealing, more appetizing than ever before, and so they ate. Checkmate. The serpent's strategy succeeded, and they died. Oh, they were still standing there, but they weren't at all the same. They had died spiritually on the inside. And at that moment, the clock began ticking relentlessly, inexorably toward the day when they would each die physically. We're taking up this subject today because the serpent's strategy has been successfully and repeatedly implemented over and over and over again throughout human history. Adam and Eve's desire to live independently of God's authority makes perfect sense to all of us, doesn't it? I mean, it does. Because that's the way we largely live. And on many levels, including our sexuality. The percentage of U.S. adults who identify as something other than heterosexual has doubled over the last 10 years, from 3.5% in 2012 to over 7% in 2022. 
The Gallup organization predicts as the youngest Americans slowly outnumber and replace the oldest that the number of adults identifying as LGBTQ will only increase and at a more rapid rate than in past generations. This morning, as we consider what the Bible has to say about the choices being made by many who are embracing homosexual and transgender transgender lifestyles, uh, we each need in humility to remind ourselves that we humans have this in common, that we are inherently bent toward resistance to the word and the command of the creator God. That we are inclined toward rebellion against him. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam, the Bible tells us, and so sin spread to all of humanity and even to you and to me, to our children, to our grandchildren, to our grandchildren's grandchildren. What follows in the remainder of the of Genesis is a description then of the, the outward and downward spread of, of that sin nature to every generation. One of the leading indicators of spiritual death is the distortion and perversion of human sexuality. In Genesis 6, we read of the sons of God, meaning fallen angels, having sexual relations with the daughters of men and producing an evil hybrid race. In Genesis 6, verse 5, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, such that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so he sent a flood on the whole earth that would blot out man and animals, creeping things and birds. Only Noah and his family escaped. The only people on the entire globe who escaped the flood were Noah and his family. In Genesis 9, we read of the first cases of incest and rape. Genesis 12 records adultery. Genesis 19, yet another case of incest. Genesis 12, adultery. Genesis 19, uh, homosexuality uh, and attempted gang rape in Sodom. By the way, contrary to to what some people will tell you, the the sin of Sodom was in fact sexual perversion, not, not a lack of hospitality. Also in Genesis 19, another incident of incest. Genesis 34 records the rape of Jacob's daughter Dinah. In Genesis 38, there's prostitution and on and on and on and on. Many, if not most biblical scholars, believe that Psalm 51 records King David's repentance in the wake of his adulterous sexual relationship with Bathsheba, the beautiful wife of one of his most trusted generals, Uriah, a sin that David tried to cover up. But when the cover-up failed, he ordered that Uriah be put to death, that it should be made to look like a battlefield casualty. When the fact of his sin and the gravity of his sin is ultimately revealed and confronted, he acknowledges in verse 5 of Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What was David expressing? It's not a commentary on his mother's sinfulness. Rather, it's he's expressing that what he had done was not just the result of a sudden thought, a sudden impulse, nor was it merely a, an outward 
act, something outside of himself, nor, nor even was it just an offense committed under the influence of a random strong temptation, but that it was the inevitable product of something much deeper, uh, uh, of a pervasive depravity of heart and soul that could be traced back not just to the day he first drew breath, but even before that, as he was conceived in his mother's womb. David is admitting his own brokenness, his own depravity, confessing that he could not have committed this heinous, aggravated, grievous offense unless he had always been thoroughly sinful, thoroughly corrupt. See, David's anguished confession reminds us that he, like you and me, was born with a deeply ingrained predilection for every kind of sin. Every kind of sin. He was a natural-born adulterer, a natural-born murderer. And he made no excuses, but acknowledged the depth of his guilt, confessed that only God himself could forgive his sin, cleanse him, and create in him a clean heart. The Apostle John wrote similarly, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Years ago, I learned this working definition of sin, that sin is anything in thought, word, or deed that is contrary to the will of God good, practical, everyday definition. Sin is anything in thought, word, or deed that's contrary to the will of God. So as we approach this subject, let's have the humility to acknowledge with David that each of us is broken in many ways, including in the area of our sexuality. Every one of us, at some level, sexual lust, premarital and extramarital sexual activities, adultery, uh, your addiction to porn or to erotic literature, homosexuality, transgenderism, and any and every other sexual deviation stems from just one source. Sin has a, a deep, has caused a deep diabolical disturbance and distortion in our souls, in our innermost beings. For most of us, the expression of our sexual brokenness manifests toward members of the opposite sex. For some, it manifests in same-sex attraction. For all of us, the road to healing is in confession, it's in repentance, and in calling out to God for forgiveness, for cleansing, for restoration in the name of Jesus Christ, his Son. Well, let's look at what the Bible says about homosexuality. Again, this is uh, just direct teaching today. The first direct commandment in the Bible regarding homosexual conduct is found in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 22 to 30. Not the first description, but the first commandment. You shall not sleep with a male as one sleeps with a female. It is an abomination. Also, you shall not have sexual intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. 
For by all these things the nations which I am driving out from you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so that the land has vomited out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and you shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the stranger who resides among you, For the people of the land who were there before you did all these abominations, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will not vomit you out should you defile it as it has vomited out the nation which was there before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. So you are to keep your commitment to me not to practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you, so that you do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord, your God. One of the things we need to remember when we're reading the, the historical narratives of Israel coming, in, coming from Egypt, coming into the land of, of Canaan, and, and uh, going to war with the inhabitants, is that God was using Israel to judge the wickedness of those nations. And, and just in the same way that God in time would use other nations to judge Israel. Does it seem melodramatic to you that God would call homosexual behavior an abomination? Extreme language. It's not a word that you hear much these days. I think the only application I usually hear or have heard is the abominable snowman whatever that is. But the word abomination may be a word worth recovering for our time. What is an abomination? What, what makes something abominable? The Hebrew word is to'ebah. It, it describes something that's disgusting or detestable from a moral perspective and something that arouses the wrath and the judgment of God. It's detestable to God. It's disgusting to God. I understand that what we are reading here is not cultural or social commentary. This is God's assessment of homosexual behavior. And if you're unconvinced, don't miss that it's addressed in combination with something nearly everyone would agree is perverse, which is bestiality, having sexual relations with an animal, and that it results in defilement and divine judgment. The seriousness to God of the abominable nature of homosexual behavior is revealed two chapters later in Leviticus 20, verse 13. God commanded his people Israel, if there is a man who sleeps with a male as those who sleep with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they must be put to death. They have brought their own deaths upon themselves. Do we find homosexual conduct addressed in the New Testament? Yes, we do. You know, one of the arguments of those that that seek to gain biblical acceptability for a homosexual lifestyle and homosexual identity is that Jesus himself never addressed or prohibited homosexuality. Therefore, he must have been okay with it. But they are wrong. 
One of the things that we forget about Jesus is that the Bible says that he is the creative agent in the Godhead. By him, all things were created, whether in heaven and earth, whether visible or invisible. He is the creator. Jesus addressed God's design for human sexuality in Matthew 19 when he reaffirmed the creational prescription in Genesis. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. By the way, the, the, the Greek word there for wife is unmistakably feminine. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. To claim biblical legitimacy for a homosexual lifestyle or homosexual marriage I would submit to you is just as much to separate, to tear apart what God has joined together as anything else. I have to agree with uh, Pastor Vody Bauckham, who said that homosexual marriage is not marriage at all. And that as biblical Christians, we should stop joining those two words together. Legal or illegal, it still does not, it cannot, will not ever conform to God's design and definition of marriage. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul wrote, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These three verses reveal so much, I think, that we as 21st century Christians need to understand. And I want to very quickly unpack them for us. First, this list describes the kind of people who populated the church in Corinth. They'd come to faith in Christ from lives given to every kind of sin, every kind of deviancy. And in the ancient Middle Eastern world, there was a common phrase, to Corinthianize, to Corinthianize. And and it meant, literally, to engage in diverse and perverse sexual activity. Like Las Vegas, Corinth was an immoral city of legendary status. And by the way, the list describes the kind of people who populate Thurston County, They describe you and me. Second, in verse 9, notice with me that the first four groups of offenders that Paul cites as those who will not inherit the kingdom of God include the, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, and men who practice homosexuality. The words sexually immoral translate actually one word in Greek. It's the word pornoi. That's the word from which we get our word fornication or fornicators. It's the word from which derives the word pornography. Uh, It's a general term for all sexual activity and expression outside of heterosexual marriage. Second word, idolaters, means what it says. Those who worship anything and anyone other than the Creator God. Don't miss the significance of, of Paul including idolatry in the middle of a list of sexual sin. Because that's 
what sexual sin is. It's a form of idolatry. The third word, adulterers, also means what it says, denoting those who engage in sexual relationship with someone other than their own wife or husband. The fourth phrase, men who practice homosexuality, actually translates two words, malakoi and arsenokoites. A literal translation of malakoi or malakos is soft men, soft men. And it's sometimes translated, some of your Bibles will say effeminate. It describes a male who, in fact, uh, takes the passive or feminine role in a male homosexual act. More on that just a little later. In the Greco-Roman world, it, it was often used of young boys whom men would take as sexual partners. Arsenokoites is a compound word in the Greek. Arseno meaning man, koites meaning mat or bed or literally man bed, a man in bed with another man. It describes a male engaging in homosexual activity with another man. And then next, there's no way to avoid the the hard saying at the close of verse 10. No one whose unrepentant persistence in any of these practices listed places them on the list will inherit the kingdom of God. Eternity in heaven is out of the question for them, for the unrepentant. The wages of sin is death, both physical and eternal. At the start of verse 11, Paul states, and such were, notice past tense, such were some of you. As regards homosexuality, the Holy Spirit says through Paul that it is not a fixed, immutable, irreversible sexual orientation. That dogma, that homosexuality, is a, an inborn trait is being pounded into our heads day by day. It's it's being taught in our schools. It's being legitimized in our courts, in our legislatures. God says, not so. Not so. This past week, I read a book titled God and the Gay Christian, actually over the last couple of weeks. It's written by a young man named Matthew Vines. I picked it up because I had read that it was a landmark book that argued persuasively that most of the ways that the church has traditionally interpreted the biblical scriptures on the subject of homosexuality are in fact in error, that for 2,000 years the church has gotten it wrong. And I wondered, wanted to understand what he had to say, why this book was so important, so persuasive, so influential. I was pleased, actually, at first to realize that the author seemed to know his Bible. He was raised in a Presbyterian evangelical church. Uh, But as I read on, I I became increasingly disappointed to discover that he just neatly sidestepped any scriptures that would argue against his main thesis, which was that Christians who affirm the full authority of scripture, the full authority of scripture, can also affirm committed monogamous same-sex relations. Apparently, in making that claim or establishing that as his thesis, he then felt the need to avoid rather than to affirm the full authority of Scripture. I heard a repetitious echo of 
did God really say in all of his assertions? At one point, he he admitted that his problem, he actually admitted this, that his problem with the biblical prohibitions was that they didn't make sense to him. Uh, As if he, by his superior intellect and moral standing, could stand in judgment on the word of God. I chose to read the whole book, although there were times when I was tempted to just toss it across the room. But as I did that, I began to to recognize another repeated pattern in each chapter. He kept appealing for a substantiation of his views to two underlying faulty arguments. First, that the biblical writers didn't have access to the modern discovery that homosexuality is, in fact, an immutable characteristic a fixed sexual orientation equivalent to heterosexuality. And second, that a covenantal relationship of mutual love, of care, of self-sacrifice gives dignity and legitimacy to homosexual marriage. When Paul wrote, and such were some of you, he blew that modern dogma regarding sexual orientation right out of the water for those who are willing to pay attention. What does God think of homosexuals? He loves them. He sent his son Jesus to die in their place on their behalf as their substitute. His desire is is that they be washed, that they be sanctified, that they be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God so that it can be said of them, and such were, such were, not are, such were, some of you. Now, I, I recognize that there are many areas of sin listed in this passage. There are many other sins from which each of us needs to be delivered. But we're focusing on homosexuality today. Some would accuse me of of engaging in hate speech for suggesting what the Bible says, that homosexuals, unrepentant homosexuals, will not inherit the kingdom of God that there might be a need for deliverance from a homosexual lifestyle or that there is even a possibility of change. But consider this, which is more hateful? To offer someone the means to be forgiven, redeemed, reconciled to God, to receive the gift of eternal life, to be turned back from hell, or to tell them that God's word is a lie, that they don't need to believe in Jesus and repent of their sin, thereby to consign them to eternity separated from God. Let God be true and every man a liar. Turn with me now to Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In verses 16 to 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he tells us the reason why. He says, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel itself, the message of the gospel, Paul is saying, is itself divine power. That when appropriated, responded to and appropriated by faith, results in salvation and life for anyone who believes. In verse 18, Paul puts in context why it is that the gospel is so necessary and of such ultimate consequence. It's not because the wrath of God is coming. Hear me. It's not because the wrath of God is coming. It's because it's already here, Paul says. It's already being revealed. See, Paul wants us to come to terms with the fact that the wrath of God is already being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? The revealed truth about God, who he is, what he has made, what he has done. It's all evident evident to anyone who chooses to look and to take heed so that those who suppress the truth of God are without excuse. I want to pause right here and just point out some things about what follows in this passage so that we'll we'll have a, a common understanding as we read this. First, notice with me that all of the verbs are in the past tense. It's all past tense. He's describing the some, something that's already occurred in human history. Second, observe with me that though it's already happened, it describes a, a cycle that keeps being repeated throughout human history in general. 
And I would submit to you that it, it happens throughout individual human lives in specific. Third, don't miss that what Paul is describing here is a progression, or if you will, a regression from a darkened mind to a debased mind. There are two phrases that that each appear three times in kind of a cause and effect pattern. Those phrases are, they exchanged and God gave them up. They exchanged and God gave them up. If you don't pay attention to what's being communicated by these phrases, you'll miss the entire progression and the entire point of the passage. In verses 21 to 23, Paul reveals that there is a causal root that is the source of all human sin. All human sin. It's the root of knowing God, but pridefully failing to honor Him as God or to give thanks to Him. See, Paul wants us to understand that Who and what we choose to worship will tell the story of the trajectory of our lives for both time and eternity. Having chosen not to honor or give thanks to God, the result was that they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That word translated futile literally means what the next phrase says, foolish, foolish. But the word doesn't simply mean lacking in common sense. The Greek word points beyond a lack of common sense to a moral perversity and a moral wickedness. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. There's the first use of that word, exchanged. Exchanged the worship of the Creator for worship of the creation including themselves, the worship of themselves. Therefore, God gave them up. There's the first appearance of that phrase. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What does that phrase mean, God gave them up? This is what Paul is pointing to when he says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, is now being revealed, being expressed in the present. It means that that God simply chose not to stand in the way of our waywardness. He stepped aside and he said, if that's the way you want it to be, I'll allow you to experience the inevitable consequences of the choices that you are making. How ironic is it that when we human beings decide to worship our bodies, we inevitably end up dishonoring our bodies. Rosaria Butterfield reflected that God gives us over to our lusts. And when we look at the world through our lusts, we dishonor our bodies and we worship the world. In verse 25, they exchange, second use of the word, the truth about God for a lie. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In verse 26, and we see that that it's God that gives us up to dishonorable passions, 
described in verses 26 to 27 in terms of homosexual relations among both women and men, exchanging natural relations with the opposite sex for unnatural relations with the same sex, shameless acts and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Again, Rosaria Butterfield, a university professor who for many years lived as a lesbian, was active in the leadership of the gay rights movements, the gay pride movements, um, but who was radically saved and transformed by Jesus. Reflecting on Romans 1, said this, and it's written like a university professor would write, homosexuality is consequential, not causal. If you're taking notes, write that down. Homosexuality is consequential, not causal. From God's point of view, homosexuality is an identity-rooted ethical outworking of original sin, failing to rigorously relinquish my identity to God's story, failing to understand that the fall rendered my deepest and most primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue. To observe that homosexuality is consequential and not causal is another way of saying that homosexuality is not an immutable characteristic. The Bible never, ever presents homosexuality as a genetic disposition or predisposition, uh, as a hormonal difference, or as a fixed sexual orientation. If you're engaging in homosexual acts or living a homosexual lifestyle, it's not because you were born that way. It doesn't have to irreversibly define who you are. On the contrary, it is the consequence of inverted and perverted worship. Reading on in verse 28, we see the end of the regression. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. What is a debased mind? Simply put, it's a mind that no longer works, that is no longer able even to relate to God. And a quick overview of how Bible translators have rendered this word in in different versions paints a vivid picture. Uh, Here's a sampling, a reprobate mind, a depraved mind, a corrupted mind, a disapproved mind, a defective mind, an unfit mind, a worthless mind. The disabled function of that debased mind led them to do what ought not to be done. So there's that list in verses 29 to 32, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now that's quite a list. Describes everybody I know. But it's important to notice 
that, that the process that's described in this passage doesn't end at homosexuality. It's not as if Paul, you know, kind of got the homosexual community in his crosshairs and just went after him. It doesn't end there. It in fact reaches its crescendo in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Think with me about that last line. They give approval. In fact, in that word translated approval, in some of your translations, there's the word hearty. It's implied actually in the word hearty approval of those who practice them. At the close of last week's message, I challenged you to consider that how you think, how you think about these things matters. What you approve or disapprove with your mind will be the best predictor of the moral trajectory of your life. One former homosexual commented, if we cannot receive a blessing from God, we will demand acceptance from man. If we cannot receive a blessing from God, we will demand acceptance from man. You may say, oh, I've never had a homosexual thought, homosexual feeling or impulse, but I want to be affirming of the choices that others make for their own sexuality. And I would reply, it it is essential that we relate respectfully toward those who are engaged in sexual immorality or any habitual sin. But notice that the approval of those who practice sin of all kinds is equally the product of a debased mind. So it's equally essential that you and I not approve of their sin whether verbally or in our hearts or in our minds, and that we don't cease to pray that God will reveal Christ to them and save them by his grace. What is the theological diagnosis of homosexuality? It is that homosexuality is a fruit, not the root of our greatest sin. Yesterday, our nearly three-year-old grandson, Oliver, came by for a brief visit. He was out in the front yard among the roots that protrude from the ground under the big cherry tree out at the street. And Marcy said to him, look at those big roots, Ollie. And Ollie, he, he was just looking up in the tree. I wish I'd had a camera at the moment, this little kid standing next to this huge tree and he's just gazing upward. And he replied to Grandma, uh-huh. <laughs> but he wasn't looking down at the roots. He was gazing up at the enormous tree. In Romans 1, Paul's encouraging us to acknowledge the tree, but to turn our attention to the roots. What is the root of the sin? Is it root or root? Depends on where you're from, right? Do you say foot or foot? 
What is the root of the sin of an alternative sexual identity? It's this. It's misdirected worship. Misdirected worship. In his prayer in John 17, Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, homosexuality is not the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is failing to know and follow Jesus Christ. Well, there's a lot more I'd like to say about that, but let's move on because I promised we'd talk about transgenderism. What does the Bible say about transgenderism? You know, we who are part of the baby boomer generation, there's a bunch of us out there identified by our gray hair, have had front row seats for three major sociological movements in our lifetime as regards sexuality. what was called the sexual revolution and then the homosexual revolution and more recently the transsexual or transgender movement. There's a sense in which the Romans 1 passage that we've been considering this morning serves as a template for understanding the sexual environment in which we've lived our lives. The sexual revolution in the United States that most people date back to the 1960s probably had its roots in the 1950s, known once as the the free love movement. It emerged alongside the drug culture and the hippie movement. It brought fornication and adultery into the mainstream, uh, out of the darkness into the light. Its anthem was, if you can't be with the one you love, brother, love the one you're with. It was primarily interested, or was primarily heterosexual in nature. It resulted in an epidemic of divorce, of broken families, broken lives, sexually transmitted disease. And it was reflective, if you'll allow it, of Romans 1, 24 to 25. I'll let you look at the reference. In the 1970s and 80s, the sexual revolution was predictably followed by a homosexual revolution that parallels verses 26 to 27 of Romans 1. And that brought the bathhouse culture, um, a new sexually transmitted disease that no one had ever heard of before, acquired immune deficiency syndrome or AIDS. Heterosexual promiscuity morphed into homosexual promiscuity, the the quest for legalization of homosexuality itself, eventually the the legalization of same-sex domestic partnerships and ultimately of same-sex marriage. I always think it's interesting that when I studied psychology in college in the mid-1970s, homosexuality was still classified by the American Psychiatric Association as abnormal deviant pathological behavior. Uh, When I studied it, the class, the title of the class was deviant behavior. And that all changed suddenly and dramatically when the president of the American Psychiatric Association came out of the closet himself. And suddenly, it changed. The biblically informed label sodomy was in time changed to the clinical homosexuality, and eventually the movement adopted the oxymoron gay. I say oxymoron because I've never personally met uh, a homosexual person who was truly 
gay in the true sense of the word, of happiness. The homosexual community has a, a radically heightened rate of depression and even of suicide. Since then, into the mainstream of, of our culture, transvestism or cross-dressing has, has been introduced along with an increased blurring of, of distinctions between the sex, sexes. A, a transvestite is someone, by definition, who wears clothing that pertains to the opposite sex. And it's not just a matter of, you know, who the old, the old saying, who wears the pants in the family. A transvestite is someone who dresses as the opposite sex for a perverse sexual purpose to entice a lustful response. It isn't new. It's ancient in its origin. Thousands of years ago, it was recorded in the book of Deuteronomy that God said through Moses, a woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. It was written against the backdrop of a sexual topic. Contemporary English version puts it much more plainly. Women must not pretend to be men, and men must not pretend to be women. The Lord your God is disgusted with people who do that. Neither is there anything new about the phenomenon of gender dysphoria and transgenderism. In Deuteronomy 23.1, God said to Israel, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off may enter the assembly of the Lord. And what's in view here is not just accidental dismemberment, for example, as in war, but instead intentional crushing and cutting of male genitalia for the purpose of diminishing masculine development in an attempt to cause that individual to sound and to act like a woman, again, for perverse sexual purposes. And a person like that in Israel was banned both from temple and synagogue and cut off, no pun intended, from among his people. The transgender movement parallels Romans 128. In his paraphrase known as the message, Eugene Peterson rendered verse 28 this way, since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. And then all hell broke loose. In order to understand something of the phenomenon of transgenderism, we need to understand some terminology. There's there's the basic word sex, which I think we all understand, which means male or female, identified at birth by external genitalia, by but also by reference to chromosomes and internal reproductive anatomy. Boys and girls, male or female. And then the word gender. Historically and traditionally, sex and gender have been regarded as one and the same. But the term gender identity today refers to a person's subjective sense of their own gender. Most of the time, one's sense of gender is congruent, consistent with their sex. But for some, this is not the case. In that case, the word gender dysphoria applies a person's sense of psychological discomfort over a perceived mismatch between their body especially their biological sex, their gender identity. Uh, the new view is that gender is nothing more than a sociological construct that can be separated from biological sex in concept and by identification. And that disconnection of gender from sex forms the basis for transgender 
ideology. Well, I'm going to take this one step further and then I'm going to wrap this up. There is a stark contrast between the word, that is the word of God, and the modern world in their respective views of human personhood. The world's view is that one's person, who they really are, has moral and legal standing, but one's body is in fact nothing more than an expendable biological organism. It can be treated in any way one chooses. And it echoes ancient Gnosticism. That is that they believe that there's a difference and a disconnect between one's mind and one's body. The word of God, by contrast, presents our bodies as purposeful, as infused with the image of God, as vitally integrated with our souls, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, and having some eternal purpose, some eternal significance, some eternal value. The world says, if your mind and your body feel out of alignment, listen to your mind and change your body. To illustrate a fundamental problem with that view, imagine with me an anorexic patient who says to her doctor, I feel like I'm overweight. Let me ask you, in that setting, would a responsible doctor go with what the anorexic anorexic patient's mind is telling her and say, well, let's put you, honey, on a weight loss program? It would kill her. Or would that doctor seek to address the problem that was going on in the patient's mind. See, the Word of God is not unfamiliar with the human experience of feeling that there is a misalignment between mind and body. In Romans 12, 1-2, the Word teaches us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, not to be conformed to the world's way of thinking, but be to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. God's word teaches us to embrace our bodies and to renew our minds, to bring our minds into alignment and conformity with the value, the dignity, the sanctity of our bodies. The world says that though there are but two sexes, there may in fact be many genders. And... From what I've read, the theory on that is extensive, that there may be hundreds of genders. The word, by contrast, tells us to glory in our masculinity and in our femininity. See, if we separate gender from sex, And it seems that this is the way our culture is going with its emphasis on gender fluidity and ever-changing pronouns. And all we're left with is stereotypes. Eugene Peterson was correct. All hell has broken loose. 
See, we need to reconnect with the truth that masculinity and femininity come with our bodies, that masculine and feminine stereotypes are just that. They're just stereotypes. That, that men and women can and will manifest a broad diversity of personalities, of temperaments, of interests, abilities, and activities that defy stereotypes. Today we have a Supreme Court justice who can't define what a woman is. Or perhaps more accurately, will not venture publicly to offer a definition. We have parents of young children who, when little Johnny wants to put on Susie's tutu, concludes that her son is transgender. Or when Susie wants to play with Johnny's trucks, that she too must be transgender. I came across an article from a 1918 issue of Ladies Home Journal. I don't read that. Okay, just so you know. (laughs) I just came across it. But it included this statement. Listen, pink, it it says pink being a more decided and strong color is more suitable for boys. While blue, which is more delicate and dinky, whatever dinky means, is prettier for a girl. What does that tell us? It tells us that gender expression, gender stereotypes shift and change with time and culture. That we should never bow to stereotypes. In 2015, transgender Bruce Jenner, also known as Caitlyn Jenner, was named Glamour Magazine's Woman of the Year. And when he or she was featured on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine, There was a female commentator who wrote nothing about Bruce Jenner's biology. Notice, nothing about Bruce Jenner's biology was female. What this magazine cover actually says is that women are people who like long hair, lipstick, makeup, false eyelashes, and pretty dresses. You see, stereotypes were conformed to, but underneath the dress, Caitlin was still Bruce. And inside Bruce were still X and Y chromosomes. I want to conclude this by asking the question, how do we relate redemptively as Christians? We now live in a time in history when most of us are personally acquainted with someone who identifies as homosexual. Um, I have had several friends over the years that have chosen a homosexual lifestyle. I have relatives in my own family, who uh, my extended family, who are uh, living that lifestyle. For some of us, those people are in our schools, some are in our workplaces, some in our own families. You, you may know someone who is exploring, transitioning to the opposite gender, or who has actually taken steps in that direction. How can we relate in loving and redemptive ways with them right where they are. I quoted Rosaria Butterfield earlier. 
like to quote her again. She offers this wise counsel in a video titled, What Christians Don't Get About LGBT Folks. Here's what she said. First, recognize and remind yourself that they are people. They too bear the image of God. They too are loved by him. They just sin in different ways than you do. Take the time to get to know them as people and be kind and hospitable to them. Her life was rescued and transformed because the pastor that happened to live next door to her and his wife invited her into their home and loved her and showed Jesus to her. Second, she says, don't focus so much on their particular sin that you become a bad listener. It's easy to become distracted, isn't it? Their sexual sin isn't their deepest problem, she says. Their deepest problem is that they're separated from God. Third, before you turn a conversation to the specifics and consequences of sexual sin, take time to respectfully respectfully share your worldview and why you believe what you believe. Listen attentively and respectfully to their worldview. Take time with them to listen and really hear their story. Don't be afraid to linger with them. You may be a parent this morning whose children are exploring homosexuality or experiencing gender confusion. How should you respond in that circumstance? Here's another former homosexual whom Christ rescued from that lifestyle who offered these words of advice to parents. Number one, recognize that sexuality is never the main issue. It's never the main issue. The issue is believing in Christ and submitting their lives to him as Lord. He said, underlying their exploration may be a heart that's walking away from God. Do everything in your power to assist them to develop a daily walk with God that is transformational in their lives. Secondly, he said, remember this, that Adam and Eve had a perfect environment in which they enjoyed daily fellowship with Father God. And they still rebelled. They still rebelled. Third, you have to listen carefully to what he's saying here to understand it, but he said, don't make it your primary goal to have Christian children. Make it your primary goal to become Christ-like parents. And I will add to those lists, pray like mad. If you yourself are engaged in sexual sin and feel as if you can't escape its controlling grip, I want to close by encouraging you with the words of Psalm 107. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge together today that we were brought forth in iniquity, that we are inherently broken by sin in a way that pervades every aspect of our being, every aspect of our lives, our relationships. But we also acknowledge and give thanks that in Christ there is forgiveness, in Christ there is restoration, in Christ there is reconciliation, in Christ there is freedom. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue the work of setting us free. You've set us free from the guilt of our sin. You've, you've dealt with the penalty of our sin. You took it upon yourself. You, you bore the wrath of God that was ours in your own body. That now by your Holy Spirit, continue the work, we pray, of making us free, delivering us from the clutches of sin, until that day when we are delivered from the very presence of sin. We look forward to that day. Pray today for those who are struggling in these areas, Lord, that you would give wisdom, that you would give insight, that you would give power. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.